0: Good morning, church family. Please stand, if you are able, as we read 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, "Send me or send me Uriah the Hittite and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he sent Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight, did you not know that they would... Shoot from the wall. Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go to, so near to the wall? Then he, <coughs> excuse me. Then you shall say, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to the house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are most thankful and humbled to be in your presence, focused on your precious word. As we read about and study Bathsheba today, yet another woman you propose to use in the genealogy of Jesus. May we be granted an understanding of what it is you want to reveal to us about her and especially about you. As Pastor David begins to share his insights with us, we pray that his words will reflect the light of your Holy Spirit in love and in truth. In your most precious and holy name, we lift our voices.
1: The story of uh, David Bathsheba, it's a well-known story. It's probably one you've heard before, but it's not necessarily a well-understood story. And it's a story that, you know, we're fairly familiar with the details of it, but we're continuing our series this morning, as Olga mentioned, looking at the women of Advent, the women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in that book of Matthew. And when, as we've gone through them, I mean, I've really enjoyed looking at it. My mind has been changed a lot in the way that I viewed these women before as I take a closer look at their studies or at their lives. And as we see, you know, we can kind of see how, why God would have included the other women. Right? we can see how they really all are actually fairly righteous. They're all upheld, um, some of, many of them in contrast to the people around them as being filled with righteousness. But then when we come to Bathsheba, it may actually give us a little pause. We go, okay, well, all of those other women were righteous. Well, what about Bathsheba? Is, she, is there something else going on here? And a lot of the time we've heard this passage taught, or I've heard this passage taught, um, there, there comes a question for us is really, what do we do with Bathsheba? Okay, is she an adulteress? Is she a seductress? Did she really seduce David? Or is she a victim of sexual assault and of rape? It is this something else entirely. And the reality is that her being included in the genealogy of Christ, like all of the other names there, and especially the names of the women, is meant to teach us something. It's not just about her story and what's going on with her, but what does her life have to teach us about Jesus? And what does it have to tell us about the kind of king that Jesus will be? And so this morning we're going we're gonna to look at that. First, we're, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at um, David, and then we're going to look at Bathsheba, and then finally we'll look at Jesus, although we'll be talking about Jesus throughout this entire thing. Um, so point number one, if you like to take notes in your handout, is that David used his power as king to serve himself no matter the cost." So David used his power as king to serve himself no matter the cost. And right away, we see how this starts out in verse 1 where it says, "...in the spring of the year when the kings go out to battle." Okay, the kings are supposed to go out and fight, and all of David's men are out and fighting. In fact, when it's saying his servants, okay, the king's servants are fighting. Joab, the king's commander, is fighting. All of Israel is fighting. The king is supposed to be fighting, but where's the king? He is, you know, relaxing on his couch in verse number 2. He's enjoying a nice nap in the cool air of the evening. He's not where he is supposed to be. And this is one of the first ways that sin can snare us and entrap us, isn't it? When we are where we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be somewhere and then we're not, like maybe we're supposed to be with God's people on Sunday morning, but instead we're somewhere else getting ready for a Cowboys game or, you know, whatever you like to do. But what we see here is what's happened. So David isn't where he's supposed to be, and then what happens is in verse 2, he's walking along and he sees from the roof a woman bathing. Now, there's a couple things going on here. Now, this is normal practice, right, for people to, to take baths in the evening. And we can assume for the way that houses are constructed, that probably what is happening here is this isn't out in the open, that this bath is in an enclosed structure in a courtyard and there's big walls so nobody can peek in and see. But David is in the palace. Okay, He is way high up there. Okay, He's got a good view. And numerous times throughout it, he's telling you, hey, go down, go down, go down. It's painting the picture. David is up high and he's got a view that can look in. And now the cultural expectation at this time, right, okay, they don't have all the sophistication that we do is if you're out there and you happen to see somebody who is bathing, you see somebody who is naked, well, they're doing the best they can to hide themselves. What is your responsibility? Your responsibility is to look away. So you avert your eyes, you look elsewhere. Okay, this is still kind of a cultural expectation in places in the Middle East where they aren't able to be as private as they wish. If you happen to see it, it's your job to look somewhere else. But what does David do? Well, he looks and then he inquires somebody. Well, he sends, verse 3, he sent and inquired about the woman. And the way that the messenger responds, the person he sends, already kind of illustrates that this person knows what David wants. It's not just, oh, wow, who is that? You know, I'm just trying to get to know the people in the kingdom, you know, I want to be informed. And he gives him a subtle rebuke. And the servant reminds him who Bathsheba is. He says, isn't she the daughter of Elam? Isn't she the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay, those names aren't familiar to us because it's the first time they're kind of introduced in the story necessarily, if it's your first time reading it. But these Uriah is one of David's mighty men. So David would know him. He's one of the mighty men. He's probably been with him for a long time. He may have been with him since he was out in exile. And Elam, Bathsheba's father, is also one of David's mighty men. These are two of his best soldiers. These are definitely men that he knows, even though he obviously doesn't know Uriah's life. And he doesn't say it, but also Bathsheba's grandfather is one of David's advisors. One of the people who advises him about how to run the kingdom. So he's got three men that he knows, that he cares about, that serve him. And so this is the messenger saying, "Ah, uh, David, don't, don't do this. As bold as he can, talking to a king, being just a lowly servant. And so, but what does David do? David doesn't listen. He ignores this rebuke. And why? Well, because sin and lust so often blinds us, doesn't it? Even when others warn us, others try and say, um, you know, hey, that's not the best idea. Maybe don't do that. As my wife will often warn me when I get bad ideas, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. Unless you think of another way? And they, no, it's fine. It doesn't work out well most of the time. Well, we ignore, or when sin blinds us and we step in, it ends poorly. But David does what he wants, does whatever he wants, and he uses his power as king to get it. And this phrase that you see this phrase repeated as Olga read it over and over: sent, sent, sent. Most of them are David. Right in the beginning, David sent Joab out. Verse one, verse three. David sent and inquired about the woman. Four, he sent messengers, and then later he sends word. He just keeps sending. So he uses his authority and his power as king to get Bathsheba to come to him, sends his messengers, his soldiers, the royal guard to go and get her. And what we see is, dictating, again, David is dictating the movements of people because he's the king. He can tell people where to go, where not to go, where they have to be. And so he sends for her and it gives a lot of these verses, or these f- f- verbs, that's the word I'm looking for. The verbs kind of in, starting in verse 3 are very quick, right? So, David sends, inquires about the woman, and then 4, he sent messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Okay, that's real quick, and we're not even all the way done with verse 4, and what happens, happens. There's not a lot of time for romance here. Okay, there's, this isn't a whirlwind affair. This isn't, you know, two kindred hearts being connected and united and they're broken. You know, whatever you, Hallmark movies or places, you know, would tell us about what this could or couldn't be. There's no time for love. There's no time for getting to know each other. There's not even really time for David to seduce Bathsheba. There is just David taking. And so he takes her. And now Bathsheba turns it around and she sends in five, and it's the only two words that she says in the entire passage. It's only the only two words she speaks in, the, in this whole book. I'm pregnant. Now that again, it doesn't seem like it's a confession of her own sin. It seems, in matching it with the messenger speaking to David, it's another rebuke. It's a telling David, hey, here's the consequences of what you did. Are you going to take responsibility? What are you going to do here? But what David does is David doesn't respond by confessing his sin. He doesn't respond by coming clean. Instead, he responds by coming up with a plan to get out of this. He says, oh, no, I don't want my sin to be found out, so now I need to cover this up. How can I get away with it? That's how many of us can respond when we don't want our sin to come out as, well, okay, how can I downplay this damage? How can I, what stories can I tell? What can I, what can I do? And so this is what David does. So In his plan, what we see, he is just focused. He's not focused on Bathsheba. He's not focused on making it right. He is only focused on his own reputation. He's only focused on serving himself. I don't want people to find out what I've done. So let me cover this up. So he invites Uriah to come back home from where he's been serving. And then it gets to this very long description of David trying to trick Uriah into going home. Right? He comes home and he kind of, you know, pretends to be interested, asks him some questions. Hey, how's the war going? What's up with my buddy Joab? And then in 8, he says, well, hey, just, you know, go down to your house, wash your feet, you know, kick up, relax, go see your wife. But in 9, Uriah responds, no, Uriah sleeps at the door of the king's house with all the servants and did not, again, go down, but doesn't go down to his house. Now, what's going on here? Why wouldn't Uriah go back? Okay, Uriah's not going back because his wife is kind of a bummer um, and he just wants to hang out with the boys and party. No, what's going on here is how he responds when David interrogates him at 11. He says, "'The ark and Israel and Judah, they are dwelling in booths. They're sitting out in tents. They don't get to be home. My lord Joab and the servants of my lord David, your servants, they're camping out in the open fields. How can I go to my house and to eat and to drink and to lie?' with my wife. As surely as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah is revealing righteousness. Uriah is refusing to engage in sin because this is something actually that David laid out all the way back from before he was king. He told his men, hey, when we go to war, we don't sleep with women, we don't sleep with our wives, because what we are doing is holy work. We are set apart and consecrated for God, and so that's that's what we're doing. And so Uriah is saying, "No, David, you told you know we're not supposed to do this," and so I will not. And so David doesn't like that. So what does he do? He tries to get Uriah drunk. He thinks, well, if I can get you know I'll I'll invite him, we'll party, I'll drink a lot, then Uriah'll drink a lot. Maybe he'll get drunk enough, he'll want to stumble home, and then he'll engage in some sin once I lower his inhibitions. But that doesn't work at all either, does it? And why? Well, we see, a drunk Uriah is more righteous than a sober David. And then, so now David knows, well, okay, I can't cover it up anymore, so obviously the next logical step is I have to kill him and steal his wife. And so that's what David decides to do. And so he sends Uriah, because he's a righteous, trustworthy man, with the very letter that says, hey, kill Uriah, because he knows is not going to open it. And so Uriah goes back and says, hey, put him right in the thick of it, where the fighting is the toughest, where you know he's most likely to get killed. Put him there. And then, you know, I, I, I'm not fit to leave it to chance because I know him. He's probably a good enough fighter. And then I want you to abandon him and betray him so that he definitely dies. 15, put him where the harder fighting is and draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So he... he is willing to cover to use his own power to serve himself, to serve his reputation, no matter the cost. It is a downward spiral indeed, and that's what sin does to us, isn't it? It it makes us go further and further and further in selfishness. If we are just pursuing our own ends, our own desires, it never ends up anywhere good until you stop the cycle. And we see that David's sin has a high cost, it ends in not just in the death of Uriah, but also other men die with Uriah in 17. Some of the servants of David also fall. Later in chapter 12, we see that it costs the child of David and Bathsheba dies. And then when Nathan confronts David, it is going to bring, he tells him, Hey, your sin is so serious and so grievous that it is going to cast a cloud over your entire family. And now your whole family will be filled with bloodshed and rebellion and more sin. And two chapters later, David's son rapes one of his daughters. And then more of his sons rebel against him and try and kick him off the throne. And Bathsheba's grandfather, wow, surprise, surprise, joins in the rebellion because he doesn't want anything to do with David anymore. Which also tells us our, our attempts to cover up our own sin never really work as well as we think that they would. But sin has a high cost. It has a very high cost. And that's what David doesn't see. And he just wants to serve himself. And he leaves dead bodies and destruction and death in his wake. But when we look at David, what does this have to teach us about Jesus? Well, you see how Jesus is the opposite of David, at least in this passage, where here we see David using his power as king to serve himself, to meet his own needs, to get whatever he wants, no matter the cost. Jesus uses His power as King to serve us, no matter the cost. Where David uses all His power to send and to send and to manipulate and to take, Jesus sends Himself. And Jesus uses all His power and His influence not to conquer, not to take us over, but to redeem us, to save us, to deliver us. Jesus uses His power and influence to go all the way to the cross, no matter the cost to Himself personally, to save people like us who do not deserve it. That's what Jesus does. And unlike David, Jesus doesn't send other people off to war while He sits down on His couch. He himself got off of his couch up in heaven to come down to earth, to be born as a tiny little baby, which doesn't sound that great, especially if you have all the power of the universe as God, to now I'm going to be a baby and my mom's going to have to carry me around and someone's going to have to change my diaper. God does that no matter the cost to save us from our sins. Jesus is a king who came not to use us for his own ends, but to redeem us and to save us. But so that's, that's David. And so let's talk about Bathsheba just a little bit. If you can't tell, I've kind of tipped my hand already. Um, so you probably know what I think. Um, but, what we see, but I want to look at what does the text say about her role here? So um, point number two is that we see that God sees those who suffer injustice. God sees those who suffer injustice. Now, this is an original idea, right? I'm... I'm just agreeing with a, a lot of other pastors and commentators who would affirm that it really does seem like Bathsheba is raped by David. She's not seducing him. She's not engaging in a mutual affair, um, including John Piper's one, too. You know, there's, there's other names, too, there. And there's other people who disagree as well. That's fine. Um, but I'm going to show you through the text why I think this is what it is. But if you look at Bathsheba, first, her name, there's two options for what her name could be. It could mean daughter of the seven, or it could mean daughter of the oath. I think it seems like it's probably most likely daughter of the oath because especially you see how the marriage oath is being violated here. And David's oath that he's supposed to take his king to care for his kingdom and his people is repeatedly being violated. And her bathing, right, that in verse 2, because this is all we really have for her, she takes two actions before the fact happens. All those actions, one, she takes a bath in her own home. And, well, what do we, what do we know about this? Well, one, the, the word for bathing here, it doesn't even actually imply that she's naked. It doesn't at all. She, it could be used, it's just for any kind of ritual cleaning yourself. She could just be washing her hands in her backyard. She could just be washing the dirt off of her feet. She could just, you know, she does not imply to us, right, it's easy because we're, we're very removed from this culture, so we think, well, what's it look like when I take a bath? That's not probably what's happening here. And also, her bathing, it tells us later in 4, she's been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Okay, the, the law of Moses, it says, okay, after your monthly cycle is finished during that period, you are unclean ritually because blood always just makes people unclean in the Old Testament. And so after that is done, what do you do? You ritually purify yourself and then you are clean again. So we see Bathsheba, much like Uriah, is following the law, is doing what God requires. And so it it seems like the text is actually saying she's not doing anything sinful in bathing. She's not trying to seduce David. What she's doing is trying to obey and honor God. And when you, again, when you look at it, there's very few actions she takes. In fact, the only action that she really takes in four is, well, when David sends for her, she comes. Well, she has no reason to not come. Yeah, I mean, it's the king. You, you don't say no to the king, okay? Well, you don't say no to the king if you want to live very long, I would assume, okay? Kings really like to have their way. Um, you kind of got to have a lot of power if you're going to say no to a king, especially if there are soldiers with the king that say, hey, come with us. But again, too, her husband is one of David's mighty men fighting at war. Her father is one of David's mighty men fighting at war. Her grandfather works in the palace, works with David as one of the advisors. I get, that's three reasons right there. You could think that maybe she would assume that David is calling her for good reasons. Why would she assume, oh, David is calling me because I saw him peeping over the fence and now he wants to sleep with me? It seems like a stretch to me from the text. But what's also interesting is you see the text actually treats her and describes her the way that it's repeated here over and over, is she's really treated much like an object. Her name is rarely used here. Most of the time it refers to her, it just says, the woman and the daughter. Her name only pops up a few times. Oh, your wife. And it's doing that right now because the Bible is putting her down or trying to treat her like an object. It's trying to reveal how David is treating her, how others are treating her. And her name is also missing, and she does not have much to say because this text really, this is part of why it it was hard to prepare this week. It's not really about Bathsheba and what she does because she gets to do very little. It is mostly about David and his sin and about what David does. And again, when, it, when the only time she speaks when she says, I'm pregnant, I think it sounds much more like she's confronting David than it is that she's confessing anything. And when she finds out that her husband is dead, what happens is in 26, she lamented over her husband. Okay, she doesn't mourn. That's another word that often gets used here. She laments. And there are two Hebrew words I could use here, so it's a really good translation. The, the word for lament, it is she is wailing and she is screaming and she is crying out to God. It's not just she's sad. It's not she's broken up. It's not she's. It very much seems like she was. This is not part of her secret master plan. Think I've seen some try to say she is screaming and wailing because not only is the Texas leadest, and not only was she a victim of assault and probably rape, but now her husband has been murdered. And so she laments. And so then Bathsheba is taken by David as his wife. 27, he sent and he brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now, again, David is just adding another woman on to his harem. You know, I knew David had multiple wives, but I even forgot how many he had until this week when I looked at it. She is now the eighth wife of David. Eight. That's a lot, okay? It's too many. I think we can all agree eight is too many, you know? One is pretty good. Probably two is very much pushing it. We don't like that eight. Like, we can all draw the line there. I think even in culture, everyone around us, people who don't like the Bible, don't like Jesus, I think we'd all say, yeah, eight wives, probably too many wives, and that's not including his concubines. That's not including his royal harem, all the other women that he has to serve and to please him. And the word that's used to describe here as David taking her is the same word that's used to describe harvesting crops. It's just picking up another one at Walmart or Homeland and throwing it in his basket or gathering up troops. He's just gathering them all up. She's just adding to the list. He's not marrying her again because he loves her, but because she's pregnant and he's trying to cover up his sin which is the whole point, he killed Uriah. Uriah. No, well, i got to kill her and then marry her, and then I can look good and righteous. And then everyone will even, right, we've talked about Ruth and and Tamar and how they're bearing children for the deceased. And David even says kind of a twisted version of this almost. We don't know this, um, but it could be implying it. Well, you know, then if we have children, people think, oh, wow, even the king is so righteous. Look at what he's willing to do for poor Uriah. But, so again, let me read some of these verses. One, David sent Joab. Three, David sent, inquired about the woman. Four, David sent messengers. Six, David sent word. David does lots and lots of sending. Joab does some sending. David sent and brought her to his house. First verse of chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. David's been doing a lot of sending, a lot of things that he thinks he can do. How does God respond? It uses that word intentionally to mirror, well, now it's God's turn to send. And God is sending a prophet to David. And David is rebuked. If you read through chapter 12, I encourage you to do it. Um, this is it's the strongest evidence, I think, that we have, again, at the end of chapter 11, for the reason I don't think Bathsheba is guilty of any sin because the text doesn't ever say she's guilty of anything but it does say the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And Nathan in chapter 12, what he does is he rebukes David and David alone for his sin. And when you read it, it, it makes it clear to you. He tells this, this story of, you know, there's a man that had lots and lots of sheep, much like David had lots and lots of wives. Oh, but he wasn't happy with his sheep. But there was another man who had a young lamb or a young lamb. Use the same kind of words to describe the the young, the pure, innocent sacrifice that they would make to be Bathsheba. And David takes, and he took her, and he killed her. That's the way that Nathan describes it, again, which I think is very clearly illustrating Bathsheba's role. And we also see later, if you go and look in 1 Kings, in the first two chapters there, the prophet Nathan comes back around, and he comes and actually approaches Bathsheba. And he says, hey, there's problems. Another person is trying to take the throne now that David's almost gone, and I need your help so that God's preferred king can rule. That says a lot about you, I think, if you have a prophet coming to you for assistance. It gives us some insight, and I think it speaks to her own righteousness, or at least the way that God views her. And a significant verse that we have here that we've kind of at this point of God sees though who suffers injustice, where it comes from, is the juxtaposition of what David says to Joab and what God's commentary on the end of chapter 11 is. Okay, when Joab tells David, hey, I did it, Uriah's dead, taken care of, David says, hey, 25, don't let this matter displease you, sword devours one and now another. Just go ahead and continue on. Saying, hey, I mean, it's war. People die. He was probably going to die anyway. Like, what's the difference if I killed him or you had a role in killing him? Like sword devours one or another. It's all fine. Don't let this displease you. But the end of it. But the thing David done had displeased God. God is not fooled by our justification for our sin. What we see is that God sees. And really, what—and this is a good translation because it's getting you to see how those two are held in parallel ideas. In Hebrew, it's literally, which is less fluid, but what David says to Joab is, hey, don't let this matter look like evil in your eyes. In your eyes, don't see this as evil. But it ends and says, in God's eyes, it was evil. What David did was evil because God sees. God sees. When we try, or when human beings try to sin and then to cover up, and we try and tell people and justify, this is actually fine. This is okay. Don't worry about this. We think no one sees, or we think this isn't evil. This is fine. God sees. God sees. I can't help but wonder. Um, can't help but wonder what was going through Uriah's mind in his final moments, when he, when he's fighting with, with his friends those fellow troops that he's come to serve with for so long and they're engaged in the thick of battle and then he sees them pull away and betray him as he lies there dying because especially, more than likely, not dying very quickly back then. Yeah, that has to be horrible to be betrayed by the people that you trust. I wonder, maybe he knew he was betrayed by David, maybe not. But I, I, I have to think in the moment, maybe he was wondering, Is, did anyone see this? Does anyone notice what's being done to me? Will justice ever be done? God sees. And what this text tells, what this text tells us, and, and the way that even in the, in the genealogy, Bathsheba's name again isn't used. I don't think it's used to downplay it, but it just says the wife of Uriah. And why? Because Uriah is not forgotten by God. Because God sees. He sees the injustice that is done. And this is part of what Jesus does, part of the reason why Jesus came and why He is going to come again. He comes to bring justice. When He comes again on that final day, what is He going to do? He is going to bring justice. All of those like David who have murdered and covered it up and thought they got away with it will answer to Jesus. All of those who take advantage of the weak and think that it's fine and justify it, God sees and he comes to bring justice. And in the life of Jesus, we see how he spends so much of his time among the abused and the overlooked, he spends so much of his time among the poor among the lepers, among the sick, the people on the margins that other people don't even want to touch or to be around. Jesus is with them. What we see is that in chapter 12, David faces justice. He has to face what he's done and faces the consequences of it. But in an even greater way, when Jesus comes again, Jesus will bring true justice. And He will bring justice for all of those who have suffered injustice. All of those who have been overlooked, who have been taken advantage of, who have been assaulted, who have been violated. Any injustice you can think of, Jesus will come. The billionaires who never pay any taxes, or do all sorts of shady things, corrupt politicians, rapists, murderers, shady businesses that take advantage of their communities, God sees. Evil pastors, people who use the the name of God to abuse the flock or to enrich their own pockets, and we think, man, how are they getting away with this forever? God sees. God didn't tell me that yet. But God sees. And here's our our, our last point. And this is what I think this passage ultimately teaches about Jesus and and the kind of king that he, He will be is that Jesus can redeem the worst moments of our lives. Jesus can redeem the worst moments of our lives. And part of what this means, going back to David, is that our deepest sins do not have to define us. That our deepest sins don't have to define us. And David is a man who sins deeply. And I I don't love that, okay? I I don't like that. It's taken me a long time to kind of come to terms with a lot of the very dark stuff in David's life. So we think of David, we think of you know playing the harp, and David and Goliath, and fighting, writing the Psalms. We think of all these great things, right? Well, 2 Samuel especially, especially once you get here, the rest of it is really terrible. It is bad. He becomes an absentee father. His sons rebel against him, and he doesn't really care. His daughter is raped, and he kind of just covers it up and shrugs his shoulders. Like, he is not a great through much of this. And I don't like this, okay, because you know, this is purely selfish, but I'm named after David, okay? So, you know, as a child, I loved that. The older I got, the more I read some of the Bible. Wait a second, this is... I don't like this. I don't like being named after some of these things. But listen to me. This is the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of grace is that we do not have to be afraid of the deepness and the reality of sin. And our heroes are in ourselves. Because the, the Bible doesn't gloss over many of the sins of our favorite heroes. The reality is that our deepest sins don't have to define us because Jesus can redeem it. Even the largely terrible father at this point, murderer, rapist, David, There is grace and there is forgiveness at the cross. Thank God if we repent, if we turn to Him. There is grace and redemption for bad fathers, for murderers, for drug addicts, for prideful people. There is grace and forgiveness for everyone. If we just fall on our faces, acknowledge how deep our sinfulness is, and beg God for forgiveness, it is always there. You cannot sin So much that God won't forgive you. There is no sin. And that's what we see David do. David does repent in the next chapter. He still has to suffer the consequences of his sin, but he repents. He gives us a glimpse of the forgiveness of Jesus. There is no one inside of this room and there is no one outside of this room that God is not capable of redeeming. There, is, there may be things in our lives or, or things that you think of and you can think that you've sinned so much. Maybe God can forgive people like David or forgive there, but I don't know if He can forgive me. We don't have to clean ourselves up to get grace. We don't have to get our lives together. We don't have to get X amount of holy. We don't have to go to church so many times or read this much of the Bible in order to get forgiveness. Grace is there for any who would come. We have to acknowledge our, our sinfulness and our need for it. And D, Jesus doesn't just redeem our sinfulness, love. Well, is Jesus can take the worst moments of our lives and make them something new. Bathsheba's husband was taken from her. She then lost a child because of someone else's sin. That's a scar. That's a wound that would stay with you. But Dave, God sees Bathsheba. And he gives her another son named Solomon that he loved. And Solomon became, even after David, maybe one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. Led them to, to new heights. And Solomon is the true heir to the throne, even though there are many other sons further up in line. Why? Just because of God's grace. Let me see is our, our shame doesn't have to make us too dirty for God. You know, and... I've shared this before, and I'll share it again, but there's statistics in this room, right, tell us that with a room of this size, with this many people, there are a number of people in this room who have been either raped like Bathsheba or who have been abused as children or as adults, men and women, both. And so what I want, for those of you that's you in this room, What I want you to see in this passage, too, is that God sees. God sees. That's part of why I think he includes Bathsheba here, so that we can see that he sees that. And again, I've shared this before, but I I myself am a victim of sexual abuse as a child. I was abused by an older, extended male family member, um, and that wrecked me. That, re- that really messes you up when you're a child and someone does something like that to you. It filled me with all sorts of shame. because I felt like it's my fault somehow. Now, I'm this dirty sinner who did these things. Confusion. And even though I grew up a pastor's kid, and even though I grew up loving the Bible and knowing the Bible and knowing deeply about who God is, I doubted if God could really love me. And I didn't think he could. Because why would he want me? I'm broken. I'm used. I'm dirty. And in the darkness, that threatened to totally consume me. I I, I wrestled with depression and suicide and eventually came to a place where I felt like I had no hope at all. And I, I finally made the decision that, you know what? Maybe I'll just give God a chance. Because... I don't see a way out. I can't imagine living long enough. I couldn't imagine living to be 21. People would ask, hey, what are you going to do after school? I have no idea. I can't imagine being alive that long. That's how hopeless I was. And I decided, you know what, I'll just give God a chance because, well, if that doesn't work out, like I can always kill myself anyway. All right? got that as my backup plan. So we'll just see. Just see what God does. Oh, man, does Jesus show up? So I'm still here. I'm standing here as somebody who preaches the gospel. Now, Jesus didn't fix everything immediately. He okay? didn't take all of the pain away. And there, there's still wounds and there's still things that even now I, I wrestle with and struggle to, to figure out and to see. But I, it helps me deeply to know that God sees. God saw what happened to me as a child. And He cared. And God sees what's happened to you. And God sees what has happened To all of the, whether that is or isn't your story, there is nothing that is in your life that God cannot redeem and God cannot use. He can take the worst moments of your life and turn them into something new. And he can use them for his glory. Our deepest sins, our deepest injustices, this is the kind of king that Jesus is. He can take everything in our lives and by his grace and through the power of the gospel make it something new. So it's not something I'm ashamed of and a secret I carried around forever, but I can talk about it in front of a crowd of people because Jesus has changed me. Because Jesus can redeem anything, anything at all. And what we've seen this morning is Jesus is the king who serves us no matter the cost to himself. He's a king who comes to bring justice to the abused. He's a king that can redeem anything and anyone. None of us are too broken for Jesus. None of us are too unlovable for Jesus. None of us are too sinful for Jesus. There is grace and there is redemption for any who would come to his throne and ask for it. That's the kind of king I can give my life to. That's the kind of king I can be so glad came and was born as a baby on Christmas Day. And that's the kind of king that I can get on my face and pray and long and beg for him to come back because I want more of that king in my life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a king who sees. Lord, that, and I thank you for your grace. Lord, that there is no sin too deep that you cannot forgive. That no matter how bad we are, no matter how dark our past is, even the worst sins that we can think of like murder or rape. Lord, there is forgiveness in the gospel for any who would come and acknowledge who you are and acknowledge their sinfulness. Jesus, thank you for your grace that you can redeem us. Lord, I thank you for saving me. Lord, I ask that all of us in this room would just be reminded of your goodness. Lord, we would see that how the worst parts of our lives, the things we are ashamed of, the things that hurt the most, whatever it is, Lord, that there is nothing in our life that you cannot redeem. We ask that you would continue to do so. Lord, amaze us every day with the beauty and the power of the gospel. We pray these things in your holy and precious to just read this benediction um, from Luke 1, Mary's song. May your souls magnify the Lord, and your spirits rejoice in God your Savior, for he has looked on the humble estates of his servants, for he who is mighty has done great things for us, and holy is his name. He has done such great things.
0: God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Thank you.